This is the Sensitive Rebel Podcast, and I'm your host, Steve McCready. Join me for conversations with fellow sensitive rebels as we discuss the challenges of making a difference in a world that touches us deeply. If you're ready to turn your sensitivity into a secret weapon, then you're in the right place. Let's do this. Hey, Sensitive Rebel, it's Steve. I hope you're doing well. Today's guest is Bruce Ross. Bruce operates in the realm of the inner game of leadership, and his proprietary approach to leadership development is research-based. It's been honed over 37 years of working directly with a full spectrum of leaders from emergent through to established. The resulting Flowpreneur framework integrates brain science and optimal psychology directly into business to help leaders and teams tap unsuspected reserves of human performance, intelligence, and potential. Now, Bruce has spoken at over 30 annual conferences and been published internationally on the topics of leadership and accessing peak performance states, and he's personally coached over 1,200 business owners, leaders, and entrepreneurs. I really like the way that Bruce focuses on energy and uses that to help frame his work. I think he brings a really unique perspective and some new ideas to the work of coaching and performance optimization. And so I was really happy to have the opportunity to talk to him about his work. And Bruce, he's had his fair share of challenges along the way. And he was very open with me about some personal, painful, and powerful experiences that he's had and how they've shaped his work. Now, here's my conversation with Bruce. So my guest today on the Sensitive Rebel podcast is Bruce Ross, who is coming to us from New Zealand, all of 6,000 or so miles away from California. How's it going, Bruce? Very well. Beautiful day here. It's almost cloudless day. We're in autumn. Nice. So Bruce, tell me, what are you rebelling against? <laughs> I've never actually been asked that question before. So what am I rebelling against? Well, my first answer is I'm, I don't feel I'm that much of a rebellious person. However... That said, there were two things that happened that really stimulated my the journey that I'm on. And the first was that, so I'm in the area of leadership development, personal development, leadership development, team, organizational, that sort of stuff. And where that started from was a leader that I trusted publicly ripped me apart. I didn't understand what's going on, never experienced anything like that. It was long, it was deep, it was about 20 minutes worth. It was horrific. At that stage, I had no clue what the difference between leadership and management was, but it caused me to really reflect what is leadership. So I started reading books and I saw there was a difference between leadership and management. And that's actually what stimulated my journey to leadership development. So that's a one level of the why, but a deeper level why in terms of what I'm rebelling against is that what I experienced in the corporate world was an ongoing death by a thousand cuts, evacuation of your soul, a compromise of your ethics. And it was an endurance race. It was somewhere you didn't go to enjoy. What I got out of that was, does working life have to be so torturous? Does it have to be so depleting? Does it have to be so exhausting? Does the corporate environment need to be so harsh. So what am I rebelling against is I'm looking to bring spirituality into the workplace. And so you think, what the heck is that? Are you woo-woo or something? And the answer is no. I work with engineers. Engineers are not, are not into woo. You talk about woo and immediately their eyes glaze. And <laughs> So that is my stated mission. And my approach, therefore, is that I look at leadership and I ask the simple question, in one word, what lies at the heart of leadership? 
And it's exactly the same thing as what lies at the heart of uh, well-being, at the heart of a great father, mother, son, daughter, flourishing communities, flourishing teams, flourishing organizations. It's energy. And you think, oh, okay, right. So are we talking about woo-woo stuff or are we talking about practical? No, practical. At a very basic level, we're at our best when we have more energy. And we're at our zombie state when we have less energy. So when we have more energy, we're more open, we're more confident, more relaxed, more authentic, more perceptive, more intuitive. We feel better, right? Life feels better. When we have less energy, when we have several nights of no sleep, we feel cranky. We feel uh, disconnected from ourselves and from others. We feel more blamey. Life is hard. Life is harsh, nasty, brutish, and short, and we can't lead. So we're in react mode. feels horrible. And we certainly can't lead. So at a very basic level, I look at leadership because the job of a leader is to give energy. The job of a parent is to give energy. The job of children is to suck their parents' energy. The job of staff is to suck their boss's energy. So right up front, this whole area of energy management is crucial for one's own well-being, but also in terms of doing a half-decent job as a leader. So you ask me, what do I rebel against? I rebel against the assumption or the belief that there is no other way than life is hard and harsh and demeaning and compromising and a deep betrayal of the gift of life that we have. So I go the other way, but I provide practical tools around that. That's a long-winded answer. (laughs) It's a very detailed and comprehensive answer, which gives us all kinds of things that I'm going to want to come back to and dig into What I want to uh, talk about a little bit more first, though, is the background. I hear you describing this experience of the corporate workplace and a lot of the the standard things and how soul-sucking, I think that was my word, not yours, but the same idea, it was not to mention this experience for you of this 20-minute tongue lashing. Mm. So when you were caught up in that machine and dealing with the day-to-day of that, tell me about how that affected you over time. I'm curious about that piece. I was bewildered. I didn't actually understand what was going on. And so I I guess I was like a pinball, emotional pinball. I went there to do the very best that I could and get certain training. But then there's all those underlying elements that I was quite naive, I guess. And I didn't know how to play the game. The game was being played and I didn't feel like I had any degree of control. It sounds a little bit similar to what I've heard other people describe as, as feeling like you were like playing a game that everyone else had been given a book with all the rules for and you hadn't and you were trying to figure it out as you go but felt just hopelessly lost correct you talked about this one incident of getting chewed out for 20 minutes which is exactly nobody's idea of a good time was that a tipping point for you or was that a build-up to a tipping point or what got you to the point where you were like i can't keep doing this well, I think it had been going on prior to that, but I, I had a naive innocence that maybe it was me. or And I think at that point, my innocence got broken or taken away in that I realized there's something wrong here. So before they would do whatever they do, and I go, okay, they're allowed to because of their position. That's what they do. And it was at that point, the pain was so great that I think it was the beginning of I've heard there's a very good approach to thinking about life and personal development. There's pre-tragic, tragic, post-tragic. Pre-tragic is naive in the belief that if you see it, you can achieve it. But if you believe enough, then you'll achieve and, and, and life seems so simple. Then you realize that in the tragic section is that life is not like that. Life is hard. It's difficult. The things you expect don't happen. 
and you have to recalibrate, deeply recalibrate. And then the post-tragic is when you have deep appreciation. You don't take things for granted. You realize it's hard yards. Uh, you need the support of other people and so on. I think that's actually quite an accurate way of, of considering. Now, I didn't have that knowledge or that perception back then. I think I was in the pre-tragic state. And so when that happened, I absolutely fell into the or experienced the tragic state through which you're lost you struggle to make sense of it. You have to find yourself, self-defining process. And out of that, it's, it's interesting. You come out stronger because you've got to do your own self-remediation. I'm interested in going a little bit more into the personal side of this, but what, what I mean by that is, is really two things. You've described yourself as kind of naive. I'm curious if you can recall, like, what was your take about work and business and what that part of the world was like from observing your parents, other people in your life when you were growing up? What, what were the kind of stories that got built up for you around work and business and that kind of thing? I grew up in a single parent family. My mother brought us up three kids. She was a secretary, so not a huge amount of money in the family. So at one level, as a kid, you don't really question. She leaves and comes home at the end of the day and don't quite know what she does. And then I remember one day she came home and she said, I've got the sack. And I had no idea, you know, the sack, the sack, what is the sack? Is this thing you carry? But why have they given you that? So she'd lost the job. That was a phrase over here as you've been given the sack. Anyway, so this thing that she did could give her immense pain and stress. So that's one perception I had. I had lots of lawn mowing jobs. So I learned that if you work hard, you could, for a pittance, you could accumulate a little bit of money, but not much. You wouldn't really <laughs> achieve too much. So in terms of work, I think the work ethic of work hard, apply yourself, really get into it. That definitely was in there. But in terms of really the consideration of what work was, and as, a, as an adult, you add value, it, that concept of adding value, which I think is a valuable one, is an important one, was never really on the horizon. It was just something you went away and did. And from the looks of it, you went away and it was hard. It was torturous and you had to endure so much stuff. And then you came back and you repaired and, and went back into it again. It's almost like a war zone. So you were getting this impression that work is just this kind of thing you have to do and it's not necessarily pleasant and it's challenging. And so that was maybe a little bit of the impression you've gotten, which I could see making it not be so obvious as you were getting into it that, hey, maybe this is kind of messed up. Yeah, something you did, but it was separate to you. That was, it, it was a game that someone else played for someone else. You were off to one side and you had to, change or alter or do whatever they or it required and you had to change form change your shape so therefore that's what made it harsh and then you came back and you somehow had to regather but life was based around work it wasn't based around life what other lessons or takeaways do you think you got from your experience in childhood of growing up with a single mom multiple siblings and the financial challenges that it sounds like went with that I knew that money was tight. This was pre-dollars and cents. It tells you how old I was. So we had pennies. <laughs> oh, you guys still have pennies, don't you? We still, we still do. Uh, no one knows quite why because they're, they're worthless and just an annoyance, but we do still have them. I'm at least good to know New Zealand's a little smarter than that. <laughs> <laughs> I think as an impression, if I reflect back, I think that, I think that the whole life was an endurance race. Life was harsh. I don't expect it to be easy. You bounce around the side of it. So I'll just give you something else, which is another context that I was looking One of the most formative lenses I'm looking at life from. One of my earliest ex 
memories was, I think it was about three, and I decided I'd run from here to there, and I did, and I ran fast, and it felt great, and I felt this sense of exhilaration. And in my three-year-old brain, I went, ah, so that's what being on this planet is supposed to be about, is feeling that, that wonderment of just wanting to go from here to there, and then, whoa, I could, and oh, it's fantastic. And so I had this, in today's language, you call that flow, I was in flow. So I had an extraordinary high point that I was evaluating all other experiences from and comparing, going, well, did that match up? So therefore, many of the experiences that I, the vast majority, were lesser than. And it did cause me to go searching for where are these high point moments? Where can they be found? Because that's actually what life on this planet is about. And everything else was, well, it's not there. That hurt. It can't be there. That was terrible. Can't be there. So that was the context that I was reviewing pretty much all the other experiences in my life from. So this is really interesting to me because at age three, you have this flow experience of really this awareness of, oh, I have agency. I can do things and I can engage in the world. And it really has this great feeling. But then in the context of your life for a period, it feels like this real outlier sort of exception compared to these other ones. But you, instead of going, well, I guess that was just some random thing that happened. You go, there must be more of these. Where do I find them? Yeah, absolutely. And I look back at that and what is it I do now? Because I'm all around. How do you rediscover that on a predictable, regular basis? How do you re-engage? How do you live at that level? Now, we use the word spiritual. You, d- you may not need to, but basically that's a level of, it's a high state of connection, the quality of the energy you connect to. So I've got some definition around it now, but that is the stimulant. That was the catalyst. Do you have any ideas or guesses as to why it is that this, again, exception, this unusual experience for you, why, even in the light of it being more of the exception than the rule, yeah. why it was that your brain internalized that, well, that's possible and that's the thing. Like, Do you have any guesses as to why you picked that instead of going, huh, I guess this, that was just a random thing that happened, whatever. Well, this is where it does go slightly woo. If you believe in past lives, <laughs> we come in with a particular orientation and that puts us on a certain path. And either that gets activated or not according to the circumstances you grow up in. You look at some people and they go and grow through horrendous life experiences, but something pushes them through. Others, they don't. And you think, same experience, same family, but one did this and the other one didn't. So short answer is, I don't know. I have my own belief that there could be something in there, but I can't confirm. (laughs) All I can say is it's been what I'd call a permanent line it's, I can see that trace of it throughout the whole of my life is chasing that deep sense of exuberance and well-being. As you were growing up, going through childhood and, and starting into adulthood, do you have any stories or experiences related to that that you could tell us about either moments where you found it or uh, attempts to find it that maybe didn't work out or anything like that? This is the naivety in my head. I always wanted to be a good person, an elder of the tribe, so someone who did a, a good job as a child, I wanted to be a good person, want to be those righteous few or whatever. I had no clue what that meant. I thought my elders were better, so therefore if they're older, they were better. And they were all somehow adults, some some were okay, some were really good. And so I asked myself the question, how do you get to, what training do you need to get to the really good ones? <laughs> I thought that was university. <laughs> I thought you went to university because that's where you got the special training to be 
a good quality human. That's how naive I was. And so I went to university with that naive expectation. And then two things happened. Number one, I experienced the reality. But number two, I did encounter an organization that was everything and more of, so this is what human life on the planet's about. It was an esoteric school. Think of it as like Hogwarts. (laughs) So... And so in my naivety, it was like what I thought, because university, the universe, oh, you open up the universe. Oh, you get to encounter what's on. Oh, that's how naive I was thinking. But I did experience that with this other organization. So I that somehow confirmed it, because the experiences I felt as a young kid, I was experiencing there. And I was no drugs. It wasn't anything like that. Back then, it was what, in the 70s and 80s. These days, it'd be more mainstream. But back then, it, was, it's, it really was woo. You know, meditation and sacred dance and healing at distance and mental healing and blah, 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 you know, all that stuff, which today is more mainstream. So there was a connection between that early experience and what it could be like as an adult. So sure, I latched onto that and stayed with it and I still work in those areas. And so that's that was like a confirmation. Why do you think it was that you ended up in the context of the work world, at least initially, succumbing to the ugly realities of how the corporate world often can be. And how did that experience with this awareness of flow, how did that juxtaposition affect you? It was a deep absence of sense of self. I didn't know myself. You'd ask, you'd say, I couldn't even consider a vision. Now, What's your vision for two years out? Where do you want to be in a year's time? I had no clue, no referencing, let alone purpose. What's your purpose on life? What the heck? So that's quite a dichotomy because on one hand, I was learning about human purpose, the human race purpose, but I haven't associated with my personal purpose. So there was I wandering around, feeling a deep sense of emptiness. And so you bounce around, not quite aware of what the rules of the game are. I'd say um, hypervigilant, agitated, and never being able to relax. So I couldn't relax. I had no sense of self. I didn't know who I was, who I wanted to be in the world, who I could be in the world. How do we even be? That was at a time when you go to motivational speakers and they'd say, oh, you've got to have the right attitude. You've got to have an attitude of a winner. And you go, oh, I really want it. But how? There's no practicality. And I remember listening to this tape over and over, but I still couldn't get it. The interesting thing, actually, in the journey of that, and I think it's possibly what everyone needs to go through in terms of the tragic and post-tragic, is that two questions, is it true and is it true for me? You hear stuff and you go, they're an expert. They must know, so it must be true. But then is it true for me? I wasn't finding that, but I thought there's something wrong with me, therefore. Now, the switch for me happened later when I thought, hang on, maybe they've got it wrong. Are there ways in which that feeling, that experience of, I'm not sure it's even okay to be me, how else did that show up in your life? What were some of the other impacts that you, looking back, can see that had on how you engaged in the world, what you didn't do, et cetera? Oh, that was uh, it was like a wet blanket across pretty much everything. So you get married. If it's not going right, it must be me. I don't really have a clue about parenting. So you do your best. And if anything goes wrong, it must be me. And so that's that deep insecurity. I don't know the rules of the game. I don't even know how to read the the rules of the game. So you've got a now self-perpetuating cycle of worry, self-anxiety, self-bullying, self-criticism, lack of self-awareness, self-acceptance, all of those sorts of things. So you ask, what impact did it have? I think probably good 20, 25 years of massive anxiety. What did you do with that anxiety? I didn't have a clue. The way I dealt with it was to withdraw. So if there's something wrong with me, then no matter what I say, it's probably not going to be worthwhile anyway. And other people who seem to know the rules of the game 
I've got more to say. So I'll just follow. So I became a follower, codependent, worried all the time. And then the whole self-perpetuating cycle of getting the evidence that you're not good enough, so therefore you can't be good enough, blah, 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 blah. I guess there has to be something that cracks you out of that. So you you attempt, you recognize there's something wrong, so you read, but that really doesn't get deep. It's it's like a knowledge level and it stays at skin deep, skin level. And so there are a number of things that I think you need to you go through that tragic or get cracked open. So another cracking. So the one was obviously this conversation I said I had with um, that leader. But another big one was about four and a half years ago, our 25-year-old daughter, Danny, was diagnosed with lymphoma cancer and unfortunately passed about 12 months later. And so that put the whole family, there were two daughters, Kimberly and my wife, so four of us. And so that was hugely traumatic, traumatizing, devastating. And even at an existential level, talk about being cracked open, you think you've got a few clues because you put a few things together. And what I realized was if, if I do good in the world, good things will happen. This wasn't a quote unquote good thing. And so therefore you really had to reassess everything about even your belief in creation, God, the purpose, all these things you'd learned and heard about how intellectual versus how real were they. So that was another cracking open event, tragic. And then you got to climb out and you can have post-traumatic stress disorder or post-traumatic growth. I believe I experienced post-traumatic growth to, to see what was going on and to be even stronger as a result of it. So how did I deal with it pre all of that, doing the best I could, minimalizing the pain, keeping my head low, and then post that, I would, I'd put myself definitely in the post-tragic, which is putting yourself back together again, stepping up, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's why I refer to that pre-tragic and post-tragic, because I think it's accurate. Totally makes sense. Yeah, this pair of challenging experiences, one on the work side, but two, this had to have been an immensely difficult and painful personal loss with your daughter. And that does totally make sense to me. That's a point at which you get that pressure from both sides of your world, how that could cause a, a cracking of sorts in an emotional sense. And so tell us about, as you started to move forward from that cracking or those, those crackings, as you started to move forward from this, what were the things that you started doing to try and figure out what's the deal here and where am I going to go from here? Yeah. So it was a top to bottom reconditioning. What do I mean by that is there's a phrase by Einstein, one of the most important decisions you'll ever make is do we live in a hostile or a benevolent universe? And that I think is absolutely uh, one of the questions that everyone's going to have to face and ask and answer, and not just at an intellectual level, but at a deep throughout knowing level. And so for me, there's an unequivocal benevolent universe realignment. So I think it starts at that level. It's not like you you do things or read things. It's almost like you've got to meet your creator. How do you do that? You ask yourself that sort of question. Is it a fearful God or is it a benevolent God? Or you can say universal, whatever it is. And for me, we live in a benevolent universe, a benevolent creation. Now, obviously, man is different. We're not talking about the man part of the equation or mankind. And I'm going to apologize for interrupting here, but I do want to step in and ask about this because the thing that's totally poking at my brain right now is you're talking about your perception of it being a benevolent universe. 
And you're telling me this only a few minutes after you're telling me about your 25-year-old daughter dying of cancer. Sure. And I'm curious about how you reconciled those two things for yourself. I'm not saying it can't be. I just think it'd be really interesting to understand how you did that. I, there, there are a series of what I call Danny's gifts. So Danny was our daughter, Danielle. And looking back, there are a whole series of what I consider to be Danny's gifts in the journey of the experience. So I'll give you just a couple as an example. Danny, young, vibrant, she looked a bit like Marilyn Monroe. So she's a bit of a stunner. But she knew it and she'd carry herself, to my perspective, carry herself like she was up herself, which is something that grated. So I had a certain, I was judging her, right? Now she's a lawyer, a family lawyer. And at the ceremony prior to the funeral, where the people were speaking uh, on her behalf, people had come up and they talked about the impact she had on their lives, turned their lives around. She burned bright. She was a very strong individual. She wanted to be the CEO of Women's Refuge, which is Batter Women. Now, that's the level that she was aiming at. And she could have been. I mean, she was a very clever woman. And as these people spoke, I was going, wow, I didn't know my daughter at all. Or my judgment about her had clouded my perception about this life. What else have I missed? And so I was stunned. This was... In terms of highlights of my life, the quality of what these people were saying about this young woman, she happened to be my daughter, but I was going, who the hell was she? So I walked away from that going, wow, that was one gift. Another gift was, so one of the things with lymphoma cancer is that over time, your muscles weaken and begin to melt. So you can no longer walk. You can no longer hold things like a pencil. And in the end, you can no longer suck through a straw because you just simply don't have the musculature to do that. So she was at an even physical level, apart from all the other symptoms and chemo and so forth, was obviously, and, and from when she was diagnosed as being terminal to her death, was about two months. So up until then, you hold the hope that she'll get through. Then there's two months of, okay, this is, she's in the departure lounge. Now, one of the fortunate things is that because there was a certain length of time, we could say our goodbyes. So we had lots of conversations and asking questions and talking, and she could only handle a certain length of time. But we had a long, lot of times to ask and answer questions. And there was one occasion three days prior to her death, I was the last person to have a really long conversation, a three-hour conversation with her. And that, I would look back and go, that was... It was an extraordinary conversation, not because of what was said. If you'd recorded it, you wouldn't have seen this much. But what it was, because she was so close to death, she was already departed from a body. And there was no longer any ego. It was the pure essence of her, that life, speaking. And as a consequence, I couldn't be anything other than the purity of my life speaking to her. I couldn't come from dad. I couldn't come from this knowledgeable no, all seeing, all white, nothing. It was raw, it was real, it was pure. So there were two things that, that stood out in that conversation. One was, she said, Dad, you need to make me a promise. And I said, what's that? In that moment, no is not an option. And she said, uh, you need to step up. I went, sure. I mean, how could you not? So not knowing what that meant, but it going in at such a deep level, my life needed to change. So that's part of that conversation. The second part was that she was in the bed on my left. So I was sitting in a chair just beside the bed. 
And it felt like as she was speaking, because there's two things going on. There's the words, but there's the atmospheric sense, the ambience in the room. And as she was speaking, I got this vivid image of, to my right, a door that was partly open. Not that far. I couldn't actually see into the room. But I got a sense as to what was radiating from that room. And what it was like for me was that on this side of the door was carnality and life and, and so forth. And on the other side was what was on the other side of the veil of death. And so I was getting this this waft, this radiance coming through from what was on the other side. And it was a deep quietude and a stillness at a level I've never experienced before that had healing. So that gift, it's one of the, the savioral elements that, because I felt like I felt healed in the presence of what was coming through the door, the, the crack. I couldn't actually see in, but I certainly felt it. So you ask me, do we live in a benevolent universe? And I go, I'm one of the very few. I haven't died and come back, nothing like that. But I have experienced what felt to me like what's on the other side. And that was profound. So there's no leap to say that we live in a benevolent universe because that depth of healing and what I felt and the anxieties versus the, the settlings, plus all those other intermediary things of later when she died and hearing what other people said and just the, in my accepting I will step up and what's happened since then. And our whole, you know, it's what I call Danny's gifts. So that comes in some way reconciling something that you could see is horrendous. It makes sense to me now. I mean, I'll, I'll say this as I hear you tell that, I'm like, oh, okay. It's very obvious. And to which I want to say thank you so much for sharing this obviously very personal, intense story of yours. And I'm I'm sorry that your daughter was lost to you and your family in this world so soon because she sounds like truly an amazing soul. And for everyone listening, because you won't see this visually, I want to highlight the fact that as Bruce is, is talking to me, in the background on his wall, there is a picture that is indeed of his daughter. Yeah. So it's very interesting as I'm listening to this and there she is in, in the background with this whole conversation, which is really quite a, quite a powerful thing. So thank you, Bruce. No, you're welcome. Okay. So you lose your daughter and then you start moving forward from there. Tell me about what came next for what you. What came next was... It was a bringing together of many things. So I had to define, and I think this is where language is so important. You've got to define what is your purpose, put it into words in a way that resonates. And so one of the understandings I've come across, I've done visioning work with other people before, and you know, in the ideal world, what would you like to see? That's never really worked for me because we don't live in the ideal world. So what, you know, it's a stupid exercise, but everyone else is doing it. This is one of those things that the experts say to do this, so it must be something wrong with me, but I've now learned that no, I think they've got it wrong. <laughs> so the approach that I take around that is have a resonant purpose. What's a resonant purpose is one that every cell in your body resonates with. So in the work that I do with people, they come up with two to five word phrase. Why two to five word? Easy to remember, but it's resonant. This is where the energy piece comes in, because if I believe that energy is an indicator of how near or how far you are from the thing you what you're supposed to be doing. If it's low energy and exhausting, then that ain't the thing to be doing. Well, those aren't the thoughts to be having. If it does energize you at a deep level, then you're close. If you're like, you've got the Wi-Fi router, you're close to the signal. When you're further away, 
it's intermittent and it's harsh and it's difficult and life's a problem and so forth. But you've actually got to consciously find the words in that place. How do you name the place? How do you name that? So that was one of the things that I absolutely did. And so I knew the resonant piece was crucial. It can't be intellectual. So that's something I did on and to myself, plus I do with other people. And so that locks in a point of certainty because we don't have much certainty. Another layer around that is what I call resonant identities. What's a resonant identity? Identity is our definition of ourselves to ourselves. So I ask you, man, are you saying I'm a caring man, I'm a compassionate man, I'm a generous man, whatever. And we act in accordance with our self-identity. So if you see yourself as a generous man, you'll do generous acts. If you see yourself as a caring man, and if you you do things that are not caring, your conscience will go, hey, whoa, hang on, whoa, something's not right. So even inside that, we're not that clear. We've got thousands of identities. We've got son, we've got father, we've got worker, we've got community member, we've got voter, we've got car driver. We've got thousands of identities. So as an example, getting someone to identify their to a forward phrase, their identity about what sort of leader are they? Then you get an exact adjective. It's got to resonate. So now you're getting points on the page of our lives which are as close to certainties. So as an example, working with one guy and he's a CEO and I said, so what are you, a CEO or a leader or a facilitator or advocate, whatever? And he said, no, I'm a leader. Okay, good. So what sort of leader are you? And we actually spent quite a bit of time, but the word that for him was, I'm an energizing leader. Now, I had been talking about energy, but he resonated with that. And so, therefore, we now have a reference point for him and for me with him to say, okay, well, how would an energizing leader deal with that situation? So there's a point of certainty for him, and that energizes our core to come out from. So you asked me, how did I get through all of that? These sorts of deliberate bringing the fabric weave of my core bringing the thread count tighter. How did you find and build these ideas? Part of it is you hear a a phrase or you hear a word or you hear something, you think, oh, there's something in that. And then you do your own creativity with it and you blend, oh, that. I wonder if that could work with that. And you you trial things out and you thought, that works. So, for instance, the whole concept of resonant identities is really quite new for me. It's only about six months and I've been trialing it and people love it. And so, oh, well, that's definitely, that's now part of the toolbox. But it all springs out of, I want people to experience high energy states. That is what I call spirituality, but high energy states in their lives. And they don't, if we're leaking energy, worry, concern, overwhelm, doubt, procrastination, perfectionism, comparison, judgment, they're all leakers. But we're not taught that they're leakers. We just live life and the way the brain operates, it tends to work that way anyway. You know, oh, look at him and she's got that. Oh, why don't I? You know, you say straight away, that's leaking energy. There goes you. But we're not taught that. So it comes back to that original feeling of a three-year-old. How do we get back to that feeling, but on a conscious state, deliberately? So putting ourselves together in a way where we have minimal leakage or maximum three count. Mixing metaphors here. <laughs> that's, yeah, that's fine. Uh, this is not English class, so don't worry about it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I love this idea of the idea of thinking of them as an energetic leak, because you're right, for one, it's, but it's a way I haven't thought about it myself or heard it characterized, but I think that's a really 
powerful image to capture what those things are. So I really like that. But the thing that I want to ask you about is, as we're talking about resonant identities, what's yours? Yeah. So I'm a transformational coach. I know home. Now what's home? And this has come out of feeling like I didn't feel at home at home, didn't feel at home in my body and feeling not at home. So there's three levels to knowing home and sharing home, which is what does it feel like to feel at home in this body, a body, a human thing, the, this overcoat that we have? What does that mean? What's the level of respect due? How do you interact? How do you feel confident? How do you fill the space that you occupy? How do you feel at home on this planet? <laughs> That's really challenging. And then I also believe that we came from somewhere and we go somewhere. This is where it gets the woo part. And, you know, I'm all about knowing that home as well. So those are resonant identities for me from which I am my true north, right? How do you stay connected to home for yourself? And how do you reconnect to it when something in life or life experience throws you off? You've got to simplify your life. You've got to be around people who are like-minded people who support you in that, or they don't detract. Probably the first place to start is they don't suck it. They don't reduce it. So it starts off as an idea, a thought, which could, has no more, a little bit more validity than another thought. So therefore, it's quite tender, quite fragile. And so you need reference points around that or people who can support you to build that. So you need to be around the right tribe or the right group of people. That's huge. That's crucial because you need a soft place to fall. And certainly when I was going through the process with Danny, I was very fortunate in that I had many people that I could call on. And that was huge. That was massive. So so you have people around you who re-inspire, remind, challenge, they're on the same path as you. I think that's crucial. The other thing too is that over time is to get very specific. The simple understanding, and I can't remember where it came from, our conscious brain can only handle seven plus or minus two things. Now, I think it's less than that now because of the complexity of the world. So let's say three plus or minus two things, or five plus or minus two. It's much lower. So therefore, what that says is, really, my bandwidth is, let's say, seven things. So what are your seven things? And therefore, you're not as distracted from the shiny objects. And there is a, a conspiracy at a high level, which is, let's distract. So you can call it marketing. You can call it news. You can call it false facts. or what? I mean, at a basic level, it's to distract you from whatever it is they want to do. The battle for your attention and your energy, basically. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So mm -hmm. your energy flows, your attention goes. Attention is the marketplace. I want people's attention, so I'll do whatever it takes to get their attention. And now I've got it. There goes you, unless it's in specifically what it is you want to focus on. So this is where I think you've got to be self-deciding. I'm just not interested in that. I am interested in that. And for now, I'm not going to pay much attention to that. So... I think it comes down to that, but part of that is also, I think, life is like a diamond. So we're born at the bottom of the diamond, it goes out, then it comes in at the top. And when we're born, there's this massive adventure called life, and we throw ourselves into everything. Then there reaches a point where, oh, that sort of thing isn't for me, and that isn't for me. And so slowly, you start to carve off those things that aren't of any interest, and we lose tolerance for those things anyway, until the top of the diamond is the point of death, departure, and it makes sense for me that we're at our most potent prior to departure. So we've actually become incredibly economic with what we put our attention to. 
this is great, man. You're giving me all these new models and things that I haven't heard before or conceived of, but because I'm imagining in my head this, and I'm like, that's exactly right. That's perfect. And I can think about my own place in life and it is much more of a narrowing, you know, kind of space. And I've been at that spot where it was like, have it as, as wide as you can. Yep. But I think your point about that, as we narrow it, and this is something I'd like to talk to my clients about too, is as we narrow that focus, it does give us greater power. Yep. Because we're directing that amount of energy in a more directed and narrow form. I really like that model, that life model of the diamond. Tell me some about how you have brought this into the work that you do. And tell us a little bit about what is the experience for somebody who comes to work with you and to, to get help from you about what that's like. Okay, so I'll talk about from a conceptual perspective, and then I'll give you some examples, right? Great. So the overarching concept is energy leakage. So the three questions around energy management or energy intelligence, it's what leaks the energy specifically? How do I top up with high quality energy? And then how do I optimize? Okay, so the first place to start is how to plug the energy leakers so you feel good or feel better. Then how do we top up on a regular basis so we feel even extraordinarily good to then be able to give? That's the simple concept. So therefore, I think in terms of U, 1.0, you 2.0, you 3.0, U 1.0 is where I think most people are, which is struggling to be 1.0. They're probably 0.8 because there's real issue, real problem. They're leaking energy. They're struggling to get through. They don't know how to think about things. They're lost. They're overwhelmed. All of that. And certainly COVID put us all into a tailspin. So energy leakage. So that's U 1.0, which is where most people are. And we get, we have vision. What's your vision for the future? What are your dreams? I think achieving those would be 2.0. I'm actually interested in 3.0, which is where you've designed a life where you are living in exuberance. So most people think, well, if I achieve that vision, I'm a happy camper. Well, what's beyond that, though? Now, even to conceive of that is challenging. But if you've got the energy or non-energy leakage, then you can achieve it. So that's the concept, big concept, energy. Second layer of concept is U1, 2, U2.0, 3.0, that you can actually become at a different level. What does that actually look like? So I was working, this is live from a coaching session just this week, and this is a woman who, she's in her 50s, and she teaches consultants how to get into the corporate world. So she's sophisticated, right? She understands consulting world. She understands the corporate world. And how do you get your services, products into the large corporate? I can help you do that. So she's used to dealing, interacting, very self-aware, has spent years and years on herself, but still has got what she called deep, dark secrets, which are preventing her worry, overwhelm, concern, hating confrontation, which is why she started to work with me. Okay. So what she said on the most recent one was drink. She loves to drink, but she drinks too much. You think, oh, okay, is that a major? She said, yeah, I'm, I'm, I just don't have control. I don't want to give it up, but I love it. And is it something you can help with? So we went through the process. And clearly she's an exuberant. She loves life because she, she loves food. She loves spending time with her husband. She loves going on vacations. She loves cycling and through the mountains. She's got a lot. She's, she's pretty damn privileged. What the hell is she complaining about? But... She knows that there is this other stuff which is holding her back, leaking her energy, sucking the vitality, self-recriminations. So she was sharing all of this, and on the one hand, she loved it, but on the other hand, 
it was tainting a life and she felt self-betrayed. She, she felt judgmental and she knew she shouldn't be. And she'd done all this work, psychodrama and psychotherapy and tapping and all these methodologies. So what she came to see in that course of our conversation were two things. Number one, she could drink to a certain point and love it because it was in the moment and it was great. Conversation would flow and then she'd go a little bit too far with it. And it was a little bit too far with it that she realized was really hampering. And so there are two phrases that she identified. This is why words are so important, language, you've got to label it. And the first was, I am free to express my exuberance. Now, before she was feeling I should hold this all back, but now she's free to her exuberance. But the second thing was she'd realized that she wasn't clean with it. What do I mean? You can have a conversation like we're in the midst of a conversation and it has its moment. And then if it gets dragged out beyond that, it's like it's, there's overhang or there's hangover or it, it, it sullies the conversation. That's not clean. You have the conversation. It finishes. It, it ends. It's a bit like you don't like conversations that have a hangover. It's great to have conversations where it's just complete. So for her, the second part of it was I'm free to express my exuberance and I enjoy, enjoy clean endings. So now she's free to drink and she's increased her self-sensitivity around what's a clean ending. It's a good place to finish. Now, that is at a very subtle level of energy loss, but it's massive for her. So it's that, and, and of course, it needs to be aligned to her resonant purpose as well. So it's how to build and re-energize the inner core, which builds resilience, which builds you call executive presence or confidence or authenticity or, and I think going forward, it's going to be more uncertain, more ambiguous, more complex, etc. It's skills that we need. So all of this voyage of discovery, and I'm still exploring and putting new things in the toolbox, but how to build humans who are internally strong or, I call it making spirituality practical. Whatever label we might put on it, what I am hearing very clearly is it's an elevation, right? It's really taking and allowing people to live, to be, to experience, to engage in the world at a substantively higher level than they yep. previously would have. 3.0, yep. Exactly. So you had earlier in talking about your experience of life and the, the old you way about it um, being life with a, with a blanket on you and whatnot. Yeah. So tell me about how these ideas and using these ideas yourself, how has that changed your life and your experience of life in the world in more recent times? I think there's a fundamental question that everyone needs to ask and answer of themselves. It's not quite as high powered as Einstein's one. But where or in what circumstances do you feel most grounded? That is, you can say at home, or you can say at home with yourself, or you can say, I feel myself, I feel most relaxed, I feel good about myself, you know, whatever it might be. And those are the big rocks you put into the jar first. Now, that's at a base level, but at a refined level, it's where do I feel greatest joy? Because where I feel most grounded is like if you have iterations of that, you'll feel joy. <laughs> so doing what you love to do or, or doing what you're passionate about or expressing that or building a life around that cause a life for designing a life. And I don't think many people get that opportunity. It takes hard work to move the chess pieces around you in such a way that you can actually have the life that you that, that you're able to express your purpose, your joy, 
where you're most grounded, help other people be there, help the overall elevation, or that happens to be my one. There is an innate high-quality, high-octane fuel inside that. So just getting back to that diamond shape, I'm getting older, I'm moving up, and I want to be very skilled and very capable and have a mastery in the areas, in, in a handful of areas as I get older. And this is what I'm looking to develop my capability in. So coaching and, and working with people at this level is a, an utter joy for me. That's what I live for. It's, I think there's, there's a concept that I got introduced to that if you died now, would you have regrets or, you know, your God would say, you know, what have you done with the life I've given you? And for a long time, I felt like, oh God, if I died now, I'd, I'd, I'd be really pissed off because I hadn't got to what it is that I need and want to get to. And I'm just starting to get to the point where I think I'm now doing some good. I'm now starting to help. I'm not, I'm not ready to die yet. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Let's hope not yeah. for, for, for any number of reasons, not the least of which is because what you're, you're, this work that you're doing is great. It's so important and very clearly something that can be hugely impactful to people. So that that's, you know, I think that's great. And I'm thinking about now I'm tying back to that little three-year-old, like little three-year-old Bruce from this little run. Yeah. I mean like, okay, cool. And it's, you know, in that determination to like, how do I get more of this? And it sounds like indeed that's where you have gotten to even so much of it that you're like giving it to other people, helping other people find it for themselves. Yes. Yeah, Sorry. Yeah. I should be more, more accurate about that, which is because that's exactly how I would characterize it myself. So, but yes, helping other people give it to themselves, facilitating it for others. Yeah. But really recognizing indeed like that part of you that's this is a thing there has to be a way of accessing it of really we talk a lot about people having through lines right consistent things that are present in their lives and this idea I mean, this is a very long through line for you going back to three then you've but you've been able to find it and follow it and then take it not just for you but out into the the work that you do and the ways you help others which i think is just super cool yeah <laughs> it's a relief <laughs> So do you ever wish you could go back to, to that you who is more like trapped in, in, you know, kind of, uh, the corporate world and say, don't worry, man, it'll be all right. Yeah. Um, at the time I had no clue. I was just bumbling around and struggling. And I think I may even gone to some courses where they said, what would the older you tell you? And, but even that felt foreign and alien and unsubstantial. However, that said, how I am today, looking back, and what I'd say is, yes, you can, it can be done, and you can heal, and uh, and touching whatever is that exuberant status for you is possible. What do you think getting that message would have done for that younger you, if anything? Would it have made this happen faster, or would it have changed it at all? It would have been massive relief, because you carry it. All around, and, and I think as a guy, maybe as a girl, I don't think so. I think guys have this propensity that they don't like to show weakness, so therefore they internalize everything. And so therefore I carried it around and I daren't talk about it because I was feeling so terrible that whatever came out would feel like toxin. So shut up and keep it in. It's the safest thing you can do for the people around you. And the other thing too is I, I never had any real, uh, male role models. I didn't know how to associate with men. I had a, uh, an awkwardness around other men. In fact, around other humans. but And so to feel at home or to have the reassurance of someone who's older and wiser to say, it's okay, I've been there before, we can get through this. In fact, I can give you here the, here the rungs on the ladder. You can do it step by step. You don't have to rush this. Hugely reassuring, but I, was, I felt like I was alone doing it all by myself, which is why the whole importance of social network, 
I think people experience this with Facebooks and the whole social network world, but social support is huge. For sure. Because even though you managed to follow your path and get to this point, your point about one of the things that past you would have felt was relief because of not being so alone in it and recognizing that there were supports and other options out there. And I think that the journey is or can be a very lonely and painful one. And for you, it's, I think it's a testament to one, the clarity of a vision in a sense, and two, your own in, internal strength that you were able to, despite some of the feelings that you were having to keep pursuing this idea of it's out there. I want to find it. I want to find out how to create this more consistently. Yeah. There was some part of you that still held on to that, no matter how dark other things might've felt. This is what I say. I think we live in an intelligent universe is something instilled that for a reason, no matter how hard it got, we'll fight to keep it going, which is, you know, now you're going, geez, kids, suicide. What the hell's going on there? That even something so core can be corrupted. But yeah, that's the that's what we fight against is provide to enhance that, not just to live from the point of will to live, but to live from the full expression of oneself in life. Well, and the more that there are people out there who are living in that way or working to live in that way, the more examples all of us have of people doing that and that is exactly the thing that can help someone who is struggling along in the dark to keep struggling and keep working and keep pushing instead of giving up. Uh, I worked with a 21-year-old, and the reason I did, and it was just a freebie, his mother came to me and said, he's coming home and talking about committing suicide. And I went, oh, I'm not skilled in this area. Yeah, I'm not a suicide counsellor and so forth. But we went through the process, and the turning point for him and this is to do with the, um, the reason and purpose. And I'll tell you the story because it's something that we can all do for other people around us. He is a bigger guy, a tall, a little bit overweight when I was dealing with him. But when he was 16 and 17, he was in rowing eights. He's one of the rowers. And he hated 95% of it. He hated the coach who was belittling. He hated getting up for in the morning. So many things he said. But there were two things that stood out to him. And, he said, and I said, what were they? And he said, well, they're both in regattas, which is basically when you're up racing. And everyone was stroking in time. And it was so perfect that even the boat sang. And I went, whoa, what an image. And he said, it happened twice. It's just a nanosecond, right? Before something goes. But... In that moment, there were two moments of perfection that he recalled, and they were peak moments for him in dark times. And he knew that he's got leadership capability. He didn't know how to express it. A lot going on in his world, couldn't get a job, so forth. And so I said, got to make sure that this is in your language. His phrase for him was, the boat bloody sings. So he now knows as a leader what he's about, which is creating environments, family circumstances in which the boat bloody sings. That's the power. He's now got a direction. Now, I don't know what else I was able to give him, but he's got a set of words that for now is a life direction, which is a certainty that connects him back to himself, connects him back to perfect moments, gives him direction and drops down. to. So what skills do I need as a person, as a leader, as a, as a parent, father, to create an environment where the boat buddy sings? I just want to tell that story because... I've heard subsequently that things are on the up and up and that was a turning point for him because it was a set of words. It wasn't like someone, some 
older person overlaying these concepts. It was the thing that he came out with that he identified for himself. That he was able to find much, again, a moment for him or a couple of moments for him that were maybe similar to your three-year-old experience. This connection to possibility and this connection to this tremendous power and energy. And with what you were describing for him, that's a combination, I think, of both flow and synchronicity. Yeah. Yeah. Right. And that's, that's super powerful because you've yeah. got not just the energy of yourself, but then you've got like all this alignment of it and the connection to other people. And so it's little wonder that relating to that would be like, wow, that's very electric. So, so for him to be able to define that and hold on to that is, is really powerful. But it seems like that is a thing for you because you know how powerful it's been for you that you're able to help people find and connect to those moments for them. And then to be able to quantify them and use them to take their lives to, to higher, better, yep. more purposeful places. Yeah. So that's there's the joy of his discovery. And then I was sitting in the radiant joy of that. And I felt joy. So that's to me, that's what human life is about. That, that is, that's a great story. Thank you for sharing that with us. I really love that. So Bruce. What is the best way for people who would like to learn more about you or get in touch with you? What's the best way for them to, to find you and connect with you online? Yeah, sure. So probably the quickest way is through LinkedIn, Bruce S. Ross or Bruce Ross. I do have two websites. If you look on LinkedIn, you'll see there are two. There's Flowpreneur, which is how to get trained up in the whole area of flow, but also Ignite Business Leadership, which is around the leadership development stuff. So there's Bruce at IgniteBusiness.co.nz. But probably the best place, the simplest place is LinkedIn. So I'll put links for all of that in the show notes so we can get in touch. So Bruce, I want to thank you so much for not just taking the time to talk to me today and to share what you're about and what you're doing, because it's such it's really cool and inspiring work, but also for sharing the, the stories that you have, because there's just so much here that's really powerful and I think is going to speak to a lot of people. So I'm really grateful for you sharing that with me and allowing me to share that with my audience. Thanks so much for um, being a part of the show. Oh, you're most welcome, Steve. It's been a pleasure. And thank you very much for your prompting and provocative questions. <laughs> That's what I'm here for. That's it for this episode of the Sensitive Rebel Podcast. Thanks so much for listening. You'll find show notes, other episodes, and a whole lot more at sensitiverebel.com. We'll be back next week with another conversation. Until then, keep moving forward.